Thank you. I'm, I'm sad that our time is already coming to a close, but glad that you came out again here this morning. And um, I have a rousing, rousing message for you this morning to think smaller, <laughs> to think smaller. Um, I think it might be helpful at the outset here to essentially acknowledge what I'm going to try to do in this talk. Um, when we start thinking about the big things that are going wrong in the world and also in the church, it can be very overwhelming. And so the question I often get when I'm speaking on college campuses about these subjects, especially is, what are we supposed to do about it? And my answer is to think smaller, to think smaller about it. So now you know essentially what I'm doing and you can put everything into context of how I'm trying to get there because I also think that when it comes down to it, in a world that is so anxiety-inducing, it's so stressful, this is, I believe, what Jesus has called us to do. He's called us to trust Him and to focus on what's in front of us, of what's been promised to us for this day, for this moment. So that's what I'm trying to do, and hopefully we'll, we'll get there in, in due course. So this year, you may or may not have seen this headline, but member, church membership in the United States dropped below 50% for the first time in 80 years. Dropped below 50% for the first time in 80 years. So you would expect at this time a great deal of soul-searching among religious leaders. For as long as the Gallup organization tracked figures in the 20th century, membership in churches and synagogues and mosques hovered above 70%. That's all the way until the year 2000, 70%. Beginning around the year 2000, however, membership began to drop rapidly, finally reaching 47% in 2020. And by the way, this is not merely a COVID phenomenon. In fact, it's likely that COVID would have accelerated this quite a bit, perhaps even five years crammed into one. And the generational trends, when you dig deeper, suggest that we've not yet reached the floor either. So these, these headlines can leave religious leaders, let alone students, feeling helpless to stem this tide of disaffiliation. And I promise that it worries your college administrators trying to meet budget. I think just about myself when I was confirmed in the United Methodist Church back in the 1990s, there may have been 16 of us or so in my class in a small South Dakota town, and I'd be surprised if two or three of us maybe are still involved with a church. So I feel like over the course of my lifetime, this is a lot of what I have seen and experienced. But this has been a surprise for me in the last couple years that the trend in scholarship about the influence and the significance and the importance of the church seems to be leading in a very different direction Church membership may be going down, but there have been at least two, and I want to draw our attention to two particular major works published in the last couple years that have exposed the essential role of Christianity in producing the West, in producing our world, in producing the world of the Reformation before and after. And these books have come from unlikely places. How about the chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University, Joseph Henrich. 
He argues that Christianity, I got to meet a number of psychology majors yesterday, that Christianity has shaped, in fact, even determined in many ways our very psychology. So if you're into psychology, hopefully this will help you out here. Joseph Henrik argues that Christianity makes us weird, by which he is the one who coined this acronym, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. We're weird. In fact, he would say that if you're looking for these weirdest places in the world, the most, you might say, developed, affluent places in the world today, there's only one statistic you need to look for. Probably going to surprise you, the percentage of cousins who marry each other. You just need to look for the percentage of cousins who marry each other. The higher the number of cousins who marry each other, the less Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and and democratic that place is. Okay, so what does this have to do with Christianity? Let's travel back to France in the year 506, where a number of Western church leaders banned Christians from marrying their first and second cousins. Think about this. Have you ever wondered why wedding ceremonies ask, should anyone present know of any reason that this couple should not be joined in holy matrimony? Speak now or forever hold your peace. It's not like you you saw in the movies. It's not so that Prince Charming can come riding down the center aisle in a horse and sweep the bride away to her true love. It's so that somebody could divulge, I'm sorry, these two are actually second cousins. They cannot get married. They just didn't know it. According to Henrik, the church's ban on incest had a major unintended consequence. Marriage between cousins had been a primary way that clans had forged internal unity. When cousins could no longer marry, the clans began to lose their power. Clans began to mix with each other, and between them developed a new concept called the public square, the exchange of ideas. And in the place of clans during the Middle Ages arose trade guilds, impersonal markets, universities, and other Western staples. Henrik points out that even today, when you look around the world at different economic and educational outcomes, you can very clearly see where Christianity took hold and where it did not. All you have to do, as I said earlier, is look for the percentage of cousins who marry each other. I think this is interesting because you can spend a lifetime working out the implications of this research. One of the things I asked him was about a number of the different efforts to promote democracy in Islamic countries over the last 20 years, and I said, is this correlated at all between the inability to promote democracy in a place that does not have Christian formation? And of course, the answer is clearly yes, because the clans still have power, and one of the major reasons why it was very difficult for the United States and other allies to be able to build democracy and understand what was happening is because we took these values for granted. And I'll explain why in a little bit of why that's been so difficult to understand. Now there's also, this, is, this applies to all of the Western Christian countries, both Protestant and Catholic. 
But if you want to look for the countries that are especially advanced, especially Western educated, and by advanced, of course, there are some problems with this that we're going to talk about as well, but essentially those places that are most Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, you don't only look for the Western Christian nations, but you also look especially for the Protestant countries. Because as we recall in these Reformation lectures, starting with Martin Luther in Wittenberg, Protestants began moving toward universal literacy men, women, and children, all so that they could read the Bible for themselves. And so what Henrik argues is that in this information age that was spawned by the printing press more than 500 years ago, Protestants developed a distinct psychological advantage in processing information compared to the rest of the world. So that's what's coming out of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard. Let's check in on Great Britain, where award-winning historian Tom Holland, not a Christian himself, as he wrote this book in 2019, a book called Dominion. Highly recommended. You can go to the Gospel Coalition website and read Tim Keller's um, review of this book. But Tom Tom Holland, and not the one you're thinking of, he did not do double duty as Spider-Man and also write this book, he describes Christianity as a revolution that remade the world. And here's what he asks. Sometimes when we're, when we're in a beautiful chapel like this, celebrating this amazing reformational heritage, we can forget exactly what we're looking at. We can forget what the cross means. But Holland asks this arresting question. How was it that a cult, inspired by the execution of an obscure criminal in a long-vanished empire, came to exercise such a transformative and enduring influence on the world? I love the way that he puts that so starkly. According to Holland, we shrug, just assume, just take for granted this revolution that created the world today. And I wonder, maybe church membership has declined so much in the last 20 years because Christianity has already so thoroughly stamped its moral vision on the world, including outside the church. In Holland's narrative, the church is actually a victim of its own success. When Christians in Hong Kong stand up to the government and defend democracy, or when Christians in India fight caste-based racism, they're seen not as Christians, but as people merely advancing universal progress as opposed to anything that uniquely comes from Jesus. And this is what Holland told me in in my Gospelbound podcast. He said, the genius of the modern West in recent centuries has been that it has been able to export its profoundly Christian values. Concepts like human rights, the notion of consent, all these things are deeply rooted in the seedbed of Christian history and Christian theology. If you want an example of what I'm talking about, look no further Ask your political science professors about the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is a document that would make the famous atheist Friedrich Nietzsche sick. He would think this is appalling. It's based entirely on Christian assumptions about human rights and how we protect other people's rights as made in the image of God, but of course, it doesn't mention God anywhere, despite the work on it by Christians. And this is why we can't see the revolution that's happening all around us, that we take it for granted. 
Holland explained to me, if, if they cast them as Christian values, then they'd come to seem more culturally contingent to people in, I, in India or wherever. In other words, they'd come to be seen as colonizing. They'd come to be seen as imposing values on them. But if you say, well, no, they're universal values, then you can export them. Then you can impose them on others. So when we think about this, it's a lot to take in. This translation of Christian theology into universal values is a two-edged sword because we live in a world that has been utterly transformed by Jesus in ways that we can barely even begin to comprehend, but also in a world that doesn't even much bother to worship Him as risen and ascended, a world that too often forgets to give Him much, if any, of the credit. And the way I think about this is maybe the greatest trick the devil ever pulled on the church was convincing the world that Christian values were universal and not, and not as a result of Jesus and His resurrection. So I, I've spent nearly 20 years, as we're talking about and you can look at in the Gospel-bound book, I've spent about 20 years writing about how Christians have, Christian theology has motivated believers in Jesus to do extraordinary things, to, to care for the weak, to suffer with joy. I just saw a friend of mine today say, let's get rid of Christendom once and for all, starting with the hospitals. <laughs> I, just things like that that we take for granted, not remembering, of course, that they come out of Christianity. They come out of Christianity there. But Christians, rather than having some sort of credit for these things, have the opposite reputation. And Henrik and Holland, they're world-renowned. They're award-winning in their fields. But it still feels like an uphill climb to be able to attribute any of this to why we should preserve and celebrate this Christian heritage, this Reformation from 500 years ago. I'll tell you how, how sometimes just discouraging and disorienting this can be. I'll, I'll spare you guys the, the, the question, but I was meeting, but think about it in your head. In 2016, I was invited to Ithaca, New York, to Cornell University, right before the 2016 presidential election, to address a group of Christian students. And they'd invited me to talk about the history of the religious right, which I thought was a little bit confusing. I was working on a book on that at the time, but I thought religious right isn't exactly some sort of powerful force in Ithaca, New York, so it was a little bit confusing to me on an Ivy League campus. But the topic was, of course, relevant to them because Christians in far-flung corners of the United States, even around the world, could harm their reputation and mission in upstate New York. So it, it, we're all sort of bound together in this. And I asked these students what their classmates associate first with Christianity. I got to say, I, I, I couldn't believe their answer at the time, but since then I've tried an experiment and I've repeated the question with audiences around the country, and every single time I've heard the same thing, and it's Westboro Baptist Church, Westboro Baptist Church. So I said, I, I, with some bemusement, I, I said, so when students at one of the nation's most prestigious universities considers the world's largest religion that literally changed the way our brains function. They think about an overgrown family cult in Topeka, Kansas. Yeah. How, how can this be? 
I do think there are some answers to this. I'm going to offer two different answers to this that, that help us grasp, I think, the, the nature of the predicament that we're in, but also can point us a way forward to what actually can be done to live faithfully in light of this situation. Part of the answer is pretty high level. It comes from the Templeton Prize winner. I alluded to him yesterday, Charles Taylor, in his 2007 book, A Secular Age. Um, I also did a little, a little book called Our Secular Age, had a number of different contributions from people applying his work if you want to check it out. But the way that this Canadian philosopher, he's a Catholic himself, he shows how the West sees Christianity within what he calls a subtraction story. A subtraction story. Because Christianity is seen as inhibiting the joy of sexual fulfillment, at least so the story goes, we can only progress as a culture if we subtract Christianity. Keep the good stuff, supposedly, disconnect it from Christianity, toss out the Christianity as being morally repulsive on sexual issues. So for a religion like Christianity, where we're seeking to persuade our neighbors of the truth of the risen Christ, this perception can nevertheless dictate reality because who wants to join a movement that is known for hatred and bigotry instead of the movement that, from which we derive our very notions of human rights and consent. But yeah, that's how Christianity comes across to many people today at a time when Pride Month has become the second biggest national holiday after Christmas. Yeah, it's a difficult situation here. But we don't have to… we, we can see this ourselves, how this works. You're watching TV on January 6th and you see crosses go up next to the gallows on the Capitol lawn. This is very confusing and disorienting. You hear about a mass shooter in Atlanta and learn that he was raised in the Southern Baptist Convention. So I mentioned one high-level reason for why this is so difficult for us, but then there's also just a simple, more practical reason this is difficult because in our media, these stories, the cross next to the gallows, the shooter who grew up in the SBC, they become amplified precisely because that's not what Christians are supposed to do. The world in one level does know that this is not what Christians are supposed to be doing. Same thing, think about the Catholic, uh, Catholic Church abuse scandals. Not that they're limited to the Catholic Church, but that's where the world first began to turn its attention about 20 years ago. And by the way, we could have a whole separate discussion about all the factors that you might attribute to what changed in the year 2000. But absolutely, the abuse scandals would be one of those major turning points. And if you doubt that, the United States, visit Ireland today and see what's happened to the Catholic Church there. And so the Australian apologist John Dixon, excellent writer, I saw his book yesterday in your office, told me, he's told me that nothing has harmed the church more in the last 2,000 years than these abuse scandals. Nothing. I mean, this guy wrote an entire book bullies and saints about all the different good and bad things Christians have done throughout history and says, this is the worst. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. And that's a wound that's entirely self-inflicted. It doesn't have anything to do from the outside world. So let's just think about this for a second. Try to piece all of this together. Think about the challenge. We know child abuse is terrible. We know that Christians above all people should not be doing this or should not be covering this up. But child abuse was not considered problematic in the Roman Empire. It was, it was taken for granted as simply part of life before Christianity. Older men routinely took advantage of younger boys. 
It's only because of the Jesus revolution that we see this now as evil. And Christians end up being held accountable by non-Christians. Think about that. For failing to live up to Christian values, which have now been recast as universal. It's a little confusing, but I don't, I mean, I think it's actually in many ways a good thing to know that the world has a conscience to want to remind the church that the church needs to act like it. I don't think that's the worst, I don't think that's the worst thing there. One of the major reasons that I wrote Gospel Bound is that in the midst of all of this, I told you, I wanted to tell you up front of where I was going here, is that amidst all of this, that we need to find encouragement and hope, and it tends to come from the places that don't make the international headlines, the places that don't make the news, where Christians do what they're supposed to do, what we just take for granted. And if you're feeling discouraged sometimes and hopeless, I mean, that's one thing we were talking about earlier. I mean, my job, it often feels like I'm living in a nuclear reactor. I don't know if any of you guys have seen the the HBO series from a few years ago, Chernobyl, or you remember the actual events from years ago, but really sometimes it feels like that. The only way that, the only thing you can do with this never-ending bad news and discouragement is just limit exposure to these things. So I, I want, on the one hand, I want to take opportunities like this to encourage you to say, Look at what Joseph Henrik is uncovering. Look at what Tom Holland is writing about. These are amazing books. Read them. Share them with your friends. Talk about them with people. But I'm also realistic to know that more likely it's going to be ignorant comments by Christian leaders that circulate on Twitter feeds that get the attention. It's going to be books that tear down other Christians. Those will be the ones that make the bestseller lists. And it's going to be abusive pastors who get the full podcast treatment. Think about this. Maybe you should make it your life goal to be obscure. Because one way to, obs- to ensure obscurity as a Christian is to actually love and obey Jesus. One way to ensure obscurity as a Christian is to actually love and obey Jesus was talking with a friend of mine. He's a pastor in, in Washington, D.C., and uh, just on the outskirts, Annandale. And not a lot of people know his story. It's kind of funny because his resume is amazing. Um, he's got, uh, he was a Rhodes Scholar in Oxford. He was a quarterback for the University of Florida. He's got three sons who all went to elite schools and just an amazing guy, but not many people know about him. He's going to be retiring this year and There won't be any tributes written about him, profiles of him in the Washington Post or the New York Times because he's been faithful, because he's done done the right things. He's been a faithful pastor to a few hundred people for the last three-plus decades. But trust me, you don't want to be famous (laughs) because you you don't know how you often become famous. And that's why I want to encourage you today to think smaller. The revolution that invented the West started in a manger in Bethlehem and matured in an obscure town of Nazareth in Galilee. Think about Luther's own Wittenberg, hardly the center of the known universe in the 16th century, considered to be a backwater. Maybe a lot of people don't know 
where Lookout Mountain is, but a lot fewer people knew Wittenberg at the time. And Heiko Obermann, Luther's biographer, highly recommend his work on Luther. He, he reminds us this, after Luther's death, there was no indication that the Reformation had any chance of survival. A lot of people don't remember this. We, we kind of remember Luther's story, but then we forget what happened after he died. We forget that the imperial armies did come into Wittenberg. They did sack Wittenberg. They did take away Luther's family. There was almost no chance of success in worldly ter terms. And so when I'm scrolling through Twitter and I'm muting yet another screed against the church, a better use of my time is to actually read about the likes of a woman I hope you know. If you don't, you know, I'd encourage you to read about Fannie Lou Hamer. She's one of the most overlooked but one of the great heroes of the civil rights movement out of Mississippi, motivated by her Christian faith. She fought for justice at a time when the justice system was fighting against her. And she showed how to love her enemies while still at the same time warning them about God's judgment against them. She showed how courage and forgiveness could both could coexist at the same time. She wielded the best of Christianity against the worst of a Christian society here in the South that had gone horribly wrong. And so I'm grateful for Henrik and Holland painting the big picture with these broad brushstrokes. But when you look closely at the tapestry of church history, what you're going to see are heroes like Hamer. You're going to see women like this because they, by God's grace, are how the West was really won. They are how the world has changed as God's grace empowered them to obey the truth in a world that sought to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is why I call them, others in the book who I profile, gospel-bound Christians because they are bound to this timeless, unchanging, ancient gospel as they abound in hope for the future, as they abound in hope for the future. They're never going to match Westboro Baptist in the headlines, but they are the ones who make this world a more just and equitable place for all of us because they are looking forward to the next world and God's kingdom coming in power when Jesus returns. So, so again, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us here? Well, maybe, maybe by taking your stand and obeying the truth in your little corner of the world, maybe you'll turn out like Fannie Lou Hamer. Maybe you'll make your mark on the history books and we'll come back to a chapel years from now and we'll tell your story. But either way, and and it can end in fame, it can end in obscurity, it can hopefully not end in infamy. But the journey, no matter where you go, if it's going to be a fame for the glory of God and not for yourself, it's going to start in the same place, and it's going to start small. It's going to start with focusing on what's real, on what's tangible, and what's in front of you. It's going to be turning off the TV, it's going to be turning off your notifications, it's going to be understanding that the goal of Twitter is to worry you to death because after all, what are you supposed to do about a tanker that's stuck in the Suez Canal? Or did you already forget about that crisis from earlier in this year, that headline? I see a lot of us as Christians who are on a bad media diet 
And it seems as though we've been tricked into spending a lot of time worrying about things that we can't control and spreading that anxiety to others through means that are guaranteed to make no difference. Things we cannot control with means that are guaranteed to make no difference. And COVID-19, I think, in many ways accelerated this shift in our primary orientation from the physical to the digital. And I worry that now we've become, in many ways, first what we project ourselves to be online in pixels, and only second, who we are in flesh and blood. And what this means is that we've become preoccupied by how we're portrayed and how we're regarded by others as opposed to our freedom in Christ and His love of us. That's why I continue to urge you to just to start small, to think small, to get outside. What a beautiful place to do that, to get together with family, to love the ones who know you well enough to be able to tell you hard things. It's prayer and it's Scripture. It's all that stuff you learned as a kid that maybe feels a little bit too legalistic now that you're all grown up and gone to college. It's regular worship in a local church. That's the kind of stuff that changes the world. That's the kind of stuff that makes a difference. And I I worry sometimes, and this is why I, I feel so burdened to talk about this because it's not what you'd expect from me because my work is precisely promoting people and messages that spread around the world. But I think about Andrew Pedigree. He's at the University of St. Andrews in his 2016 book, Brand Luther. It's really a biography. I've not seen any other one like this about Luther, and I love Luther so much that I read about one biography of him every year, but this one really stands out. He became the world's first mass market celebrity. If you, do a, if, you do a, if you have a poll about which Christian from church history would be the best on Twitter, you might as well just shut that thing down after Luther because obvi- he's obviously the answer there and there's no second place, in part because he was so cruel <laughs> in what he said to others. But ever since then, it's part of our Protestant DNA that we eagerly embrace media and celebrity as means of being able to spread the gospel. Think about George Whitfield, I mean, think about the stained glass windows. Think about Whitfield, Spurgeon, Amy Semple McPherson, Billy Graham. We expect many of the greatest evangelists to be the biggest celebrities, but this is where I come in as somebody who works in media because the medium may not always be the message, but at least it dictates the message and what gets through. And that's ultimately how Westboro Baptist Church becomes so famous because In journalism, you're trying to grab all these different incidents, and they always have to fit into a narrative, and they're always pushing back against expectations. This is how we're trained in school. It's not some sort of neutral phenomenon. And so what happens is the easiest way for somebody like you to become famous, to to make a mark on the world, is to do that through doing something not building up and edifying other believers in your community, but you doing something normally to condemn others. And that's what makes it so tempting in this time. And, and I see a lot of people who, they see, they see this history about Luther, and they see Luther as the hero of the righteous stand, but we have to be careful. I said Luther would be great on Twitter. That's not because he would have liked us. 
I mean, gosh, a Baptist like me, he would have condemned to hell. So that would have been a major problem here. And so I think with Luther, we've got to remember that we learn from the things that he did well, but we learn from the things that he did poorly. We think about the Luther who was so divisive, I would argue, at Marburg in the colloquy there. We also think of Luther the anti-Semite. We can learn from the mistakes at a time when statues are being torn down everywhere. I want to say, keep them up so that we can learn from their mistakes so we can be reminded about how great people go wrong in many different ways. And, and true reform is going to look like being able to love other people even when we don't agree on everything, even when we can't see eye to eye. It's going to look like Romans 15:1, where we bear with one another in love. And that means including some of our historical heroes that we have to bear with because they can't stand up to scrutiny today. Now, I was asked some good questions last night about how does this push for forgiveness and unity coexist with a push for justice and a push for accountability? And I loved that question because it's an incredibly perceptive one. And the answer is it's simple but also as deep as could be. It's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can hold all these things together because when we are bound to the gospel like Fannie Lou Hamer was, then truth and justice never have to compete against unity in the church because the cross never becomes some kind of gloss or excuse for evil. In fact, the cross becomes the only means of achieving lasting justice. And I would go so far as to argue that the measure of our understanding of the gospel is whether we are pursuing justice and speaking truth. But I just want to say that we do this out of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because only then are we able to still obey Romans 12, 21. I come back to this all the time. If you're at my lecture yesterday afternoon, you heard me talk about this, how often I see Christians who are willing to lie for their sake of truth. And I keep coming back to Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is only through Christ and through the power of the Spirit in His gospel message that we can do that, that we can fight for justice while pursuing good. And to do it all without falling, into, falling prey to anxiety. I think about another passage in closing here. It's John 16, You're probably familiar with it. Jesus promises that in this world we will have much trouble, but that we can take heart because He's overcome the world. Now, if you grew up memorizing that or you've been taught that a number of different times, I find it so easy to just take it for granted, but I want you to just kind of mentally look around and ask the question, in what sense has Jesus overcome this world? After a lot of these, these things I've been talking about that are so difficult, the declining church, Westboro Baptist Church of the world, in what sense has Jesus overcome the world? Evil, that, that Jesus has overcome the world. Evil still seems to be in control. Jesus is not visible. This is how he does it. He overcomes the world when Christians like us, when we love our enemies because he did on the cross. He, over, we, he overcomes the world when Christians care for the weak as He did in His healing ministry. He overcomes when Christians suffer with joy 
to show the world that they may take the body, but they can never kill the soul. And he overcomes when you, here at Covenant College, and when you go home, and when you're in the greater Chattanooga community, you love your neighbors. And that's what I want to leave you with today. You're getting a great education at Covenant College on how to fix the world's problems. And I want to encourage you in that, because I hope that that is exactly what you will do in the name of Jesus. I hope, I'm not being facetious about this. I know the talk is about thinking smaller. I'm not being facetious. I hope that it is your generation that cures cancer for my generation. I hope it is your generation that ends racism where my generation could not. I hope that some of you will consider moving to the world's most influential church, cities and plant churches and evangelize the media moguls and tech entrepreneurs and make a difference with all of these big problems that I've been talking about here. And I hope that some of you will consider moving home. I hope some of you will consider moving home after graduation of going back to the church that baptized you, the church that catechized you, the church that blessed you as you headed off to Lookout Mountain. And maybe that to you sounds a bit like failure, like thinking too small, not worthy of the Jesus revolution that changed the West. And hey, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not your calling. Maybe that is too small. But just think about me then as the pebble in your shoe, that little annoyance because when I look across history all around the world, I see Christians affecting extraordinary change through ordinary means, through small things such as setting another seat at the table for the outcast, for the broken, for the hurting, for caring for the weak, but caring for the weak, suffering with joy because they love their enemies. The Jesus Revolution, it was accomplished through a miraculous sovereign work of God through the martyrdom of the apostles as they took the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria to Antioch to Rome. It was accomplished through high-level philosophical arguments and mostly through grace and love in close-knit Christian community. So that's what I want to leave you with. I fervently pray that Jesus will return soon. And I look next to these, I look forward to these next chapters in the Jesus Revolution and I think even if some ways today the night seems long, the darkness seems thick, and the sun seems to be setting in many ways on the church in the West, we remember the Reformation, post-tenebrous lux, after darkness light. A new morning is always dawning in the kingdom of God when the church gets back to the gospel and stays focused on Christ because that is the only way for us to move forward together. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this place. I thank you for the mighty work that you're doing up here up on Lookout Mountain. And I pray, God, that in your power you would help students and others to be able to discern your will for their lives. And God, help them to think big or small but help them above all, God, to think of you and of your incredible love for us while we were yet sinners. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.